Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is Jesus? Now, sometimes you ask a catechism student this, who is Jesus? And sometimes, often, they give you a very good technical answer, something like this. Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who took on human nature, being fully God and fully man. He was sent by the Father to save sinners by his death and resurrection. As prophesied in the Old Testament and confirmed in the New, he is the Christ, the Anointed One, the only mediator between God and man. He is the King, the Prophet, and the High Priest of his people. And by his sacrifice on the cross, he paid the penalty for sin. And by his resurrection, he secured eternal life for all who believe in him. Is that a good answer? What's missing? What's missing? It's all true, but what's missing? Let me give you an answer of similar caliber to the question of who is your mother? If somebody asks you who is your mother, and let's say that this is your response. I won't use a family name. I'll just use the name last name, okay? So who is your mother? Well, Mrs. Last Name is daughter of Grandpa Last Name. She was born in St. Albert, the second of five children. She is a female human being being made up of 30 trillion cells with the ability to conceive and carry new human life. She gave birth to six children, fed them, clothed them, taught them some things about the Bible, and she now lives at this address. Now, that may all be true for this person's mother, but what's missing? If somebody answered the question, who is your mother, with an answer like that, what would you know about their relationship with their mother? They don't have one. They're talking about her in the abstract. You see, what's missing is who is she to you? No son or daughter can talk about their mom in this cold and objective and distant way unless there's something terribly wrong with the relationship. And so how can we talk about the Lord Jesus in distant and cold and objective, theological, dusty terms? If we know him, if we love him, if we worship him. John tell, the Lord Jesus tells us, John 17, 3, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is the biblical meaning of the verb to know. It is to have an intimate relationship with. To know God is to love him, to have a relationship with him. And that's why when we go through the section of the catechism that's before us today, the part about God, the Son, and our redemption, Lord's Day's, 11 through to 19, you see how often the catechism stops the answerer. As the answerer is reciting the theological truths of the creed, the questioner says, stop. What does it benefit you? What does it mean to you? What does it change in your life that Jesus ascended, that Jesus suffered, that Jesus died? What are the benefits? And so as we go through this section of the creed very quickly this afternoon together. Think about that. What are the benefits? What does this mean for me? I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. Our 
Lord. There's a word of relationship. Not the Lord, our Lord. He is ours and we are his. He is the Lord of the church. He is the head of the church. He is the Lord of my life. He is seated on the throne of the universe. And he is seated on the throne of my heart. He is my Adonai. He is my Kyrios. He is my Lord. He is my master. I am not my own, but I belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I am bought with a price. I belong. He is the beloved of my soul. He is my heart's desire. He is my hope. He is my portion. We sang about that in Psalm 73 this morning. He is the meaning of my life. He is my life's goal. He is my life's purpose. He's the reason I wake up in the morning. He is everything to me. I will give up everything. I will give up life itself. I will give up family and loved ones. I will give up everything and everyone, if necessary, to follow Jesus, to worship Jesus, to serve Jesus, to obey Jesus. He has loved me with a fierce, unquenchable love for eternity. And nothing and no one is powerful enough to separate me from his love. And so if you want to be following along as I go through this section, you're probably better off having page 524 in your book of praise open where you can see the creed. And I'll be going through the articles 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 on page 524. So he is Jesus, which means Savior. For the angel said he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1.21, save his people from their sins. Not from our problems, not from our sicknesses, not from our poverty in the first place, but save us from the root of all of that, which is sin. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4 verse 12. He is Jesus the Savior, and then he is Christ anointed. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the ordained one, anointed, ordained as prophet, priest, and king, the prophet to end all prophets, the priest to end all priests, the king to end all kings. He is our chief prophet who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. He is our only high priest who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and who continually intercedes for us before the Father. He is our eternal king who governs us by his word and spirit, who defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. Did you notice that when we're looking at that, uh, that Lord's Day 12, how every office of the threefold office of Christ has to do with our redemption with our being taken away from the dominion of sin and cleaned off and sanctified and made pure and forgiven and renewed and holy unto the Lord. You know, this morning we sang, we, we sang Psalm 33, our soul awaits the great Redeemer and here in the creed we confess that he has come to redeem us. Here he is, he is the Christ and because he is the Christ, I am a Christian. I am an anointed one. 
I am ordained, I share in his anointing. Psalm 133 gives that picture of the high priest and the anointing oil being poured over his head. And the psalmist says it goes down upon his beard and drips down upon right to the bottom of his clothes. His body is covered with the anointing that his head receives. That is a picture of Christ and the church as the head of the church is anointed by the Spirit. So that anointing overflows onto the church at Pentecost Sunday as the Spirit of God, which was poured out upon Jesus for his office as Messiah, is poured out upon the church so we can go into the world and live in a way which proclaims Christ. We are anointed. We are Christians. We are part. We share in his anointing. And because of that, I am part of a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God, called to declare his marvelous works of redemption, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He's Jesus, he's Christ, and he's God's only begotten Son. Eternally, in relation of the Son to the Father, his sonship is infinitely high and exalted. And yet, even though the sonship of the only begotten is eternal and in a totally different category, the Father stoops down to us And he lets us have the same name, sons and daughters of God. He calls us his children by adoption, through grace, for Christ's sake. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. 1 John 3, verse 1. He is the only begotten Son, and he is our Lord, He is our Lord. We know that we were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 1 Peter 1.18. He has bought us with his blood. We belong to him. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1.13. We were slaves in the kingdom, the oppression of the kingdom of darkness. Christ redeemed us. He took us out of there. God brought us in Christ into the kingdom of light. We belong to the king who bought us, who redeemed us with his blood. Therefore, because of what Jesus did, he gave, God gave him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Everyone is going to end up confessing that either now or against their will at the last day. But every knee will bow and every tongue will confess because he is Lord. And he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The virgin shall conceive, and the one born shall be called God with us, Matthew chapter 1, And he suffered. He bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed, 1 Peter 2, 24. And he suffered under Pontius Pilate because his suffering is a historical fact. It's in time and space It's something that happened in history. He was condemned 
by earthly authorities to free us from the condemnation of the heavenly court. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, 1 Timothy 2, 5. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Pontius Pilate said repeatedly, I see no evil, no wickedness in this man. He is innocent. He was declared innocent by the highest court in that area, and he was judged by the highest court in that area for our sin. And he was crucified. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, Galatians 3.13. Jesus hanging there on that cross in the darkness. He's taking the curse which we deserve for our sin. He's taking it off us. There is no curse. It's gone. There's just blessing. And he was dead and buried. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise took part, partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Hebrews 2.14. Jesus takes away the fear of death because he says, he who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And anyone who believes in me shall never die because he took the sting out of death. And he descended into hell. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus drank the cup of the wrath of God and he drank it to the very last drop. There's nothing left. There's nothing left. Believer, even if you wanted to, which you wouldn't, because we couldn't handle even a half drop, even if you wanted to say, Jesus, give me the last bit, he would say, my son, my daughter, there's nothing left. And plus it would kill you anyway. There's nothing left. He descended into hell. On the third day, he arose from the dead. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter 1 verse 3. His resurrection to life means that we are raised up to a new life with him. And we read about that in Titus. It's because Jesus overcame death. He died to sin. He rose to newness of life. We died to sin in him. We rose to a new life in him. That's why Titus and why Paul can tell Titus to, to tell the church to live in holiness because we have access to the power of the spirit of Christ in us who works in us the newness of life in Christ. We live in the power of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. He ascended into heaven. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Colossians 3, verse 1-4. And who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justified. 
Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Romans 8.34, he's interceding. Our high priest is there. He's at the right hand of God, not just ruling as the king of kings, but interceding as the great high priest who has given himself as the great sacrifice. And every time one of our sins, or many of our sins, every time our sins come before the scrutiny of God, before whom nothing can be hidden, then Jesus says, Father, I paid for that sin too. It's gone. It's dealt with. He intercedes for us continuously. And he sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Ephesians 1.20. Did you hear that? God gave him all the power, all the authority in heaven and earth is given to me, says Jesus as he ascends. He's got all the power, all the glory, all the authority, all things are under his feet, all things are in subjection to him. He is the head over everything. Why? For the church. For you. That's why Jesus rules the universe. That's why Jesus rules history. For you. That's why he raises up kings and casts kings down. That's why he raises up governments and casts governments down. That's why everything happens. That's why the sun comes up in the morning and it, and it goes to bed at night. It sets at night. Jesus is doing that. And he's doing that because he's sovereign. And he's doing it for you because he loves you. Because you are his beloved bride, his beloved church, his beloved body. And from there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. You see, things don't stop here. And brothers and sisters, you know, we, we get caught up in our daily activities. We've got to wake up and we've got to make our beds and we have to brush our teeth and we've got to get dressed and eat our breakfast and drive to work or drive to school. And, and we're like little hamsters in our little wheels. We kind of just look at life and that's what we're looking at. And then we have the stages in life. We, we, are, we have to raise our kids and then they're teenagers and then they're getting married and we go to the weddings and there are grandchildren and then there's retirement. And, the, and there's lots of things to think about in life. The problem is, is that too often, brothers and sisters, we're not thinking. We're not lifting up our heads and looking higher than the horizon. We're living as though it stops right here. Jesus died for our sins. Awesome. If I sin, then I've got a friend in heaven that's going to deal with that, which is good. And then I just try to live a good life and die. We forget that there's the next stage in the great and mighty redemptive acts of God in history. And that that next thing we confess every Sunday and if we say it, we have to believe it. And we have to live like we believe it. That he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. This world is winding down. This world is running out. This world is coming to an end. This world is passing away. Judgment day is coming. And we have to live according to that truth, brothers and sisters. Turn with me in the scripture 
to Revelation chapter 1. Turn with me in the scripture to Revelation chapter 1. And see our exalted Lord Jesus Christ as he displays and manifests his glory from heaven. Revelation 1, 13 through to 18. John turns and he looks to see who's speaking with him. Verse 13, and in the midst of the lampstands he saw one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And John falls at his feet as though dead. I mean, if somebody walked into your living room and his face was shining like the full sun, you would fall down. I would fall down. And you know, you, you watch the pseudo-Christian, pseudo-pastors pastors on TV, and they write their books, Good Morning, Holy Spirit, and they tell the stories about when Jesus appeared and they were brushing their teeth or shaving, and they're like, hi, Jesus, and they keep brushing their teeth as he chats with them in the morning. That's not the Jesus of the Scriptures. When you see the Jesus of the Scriptures who is in glory, if he would appear to you in his glory, you stop what you're doing and you fall down and you worship. This is our Lord Jesus Christ, not somebody that's there to kind of help us out when we need a break, when we need some to get over a little problem, but he is the sovereign ruling Lord and King of the universe, King of history, King of time and King of space. You see him there in Revelation chapter six. He's breaking the seals of world history. And every time he breaks one of the seals on the scroll of world history, things happen. Everything happens because Jesus is making it happen. And then you go to Revelation 19. Again, brothers and sisters, we need a kind of a reset because you, you read the, the trash that a lot of Christian bookstores sell about Jesus. And he's this effeminate, weak man with long eyelashes that's always telling us how nice he is. That's not what the Scriptures shows us. Revelation 19, verse 11. We're going to read a few verses here. Revelation 19, 11 to 16. Then I saw heaven opened. Behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. That's the gospel. A sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is who we confess every Sunday. This is who we confess every Sunday. This one who will come again to judge the living and the dead, before whom the whole human race will fall down in worship and confess that he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is my Jesus. This is 
your Jesus. This is the Messiah. This is the Christ. This is our Lord. He holds the universe together by the word of his power. He holds history together in himself. He is the fulfillment of every ancient prophecy. He is the true sacrifice to end all sacrifices. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the true king, the true prophet, the true priest, true God, true man, light of light, God of God, true God of true God. Everything that he is, is yours. Because you are the bride of Christ and you participate in everything that he has. Everything he has is yours to share. Everything he has done, he has done for you. His perfect obedience, his perfect holiness, his perfect love, his perfect glory, all for you. For you, he came. For you, he humbled himself. For you, he suffered. For you, he bled. For you, he died. For you, he was buried. For you, he rose, and for you, he ascended, and for you, church of God, he rules the universe, and he rules history at the right hand of God, and you are under his protection. No one can touch the apple of his eye. Touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. That applies to you today, and he is coming for you, the King of kings, the Lord of lords is coming towards you, galloping towards you through history to rescue his bride, his church, to declare publicly before the universe that you are perfect and sinless and holy and righteous and justified in Christ, that you are a beloved son of God, a beloved daughter of God, that we are a beautiful, holy bride of Christ. He's coming to set everything right. He is coming and no one can stop him. He is coming to take you home to the family feast, to the wedding banquet, to that infinite, that everlasting, that eternal joy so deep, so great that it hurts our cramped and limited minds to even begin to think about it. This is my Jesus, my Christ, and my Lord who we confess. Amen.